Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 111. It's titled, How to Be a Minimalist Investor. I have a clay bowl on my desk. It's irregular in shape and far from perfect if one judges perfection as being perfectly round. The bowl's color varies from orange to purple to metallic, and the piece is rough to the touch and has random spots on it. I think the bowl is beautiful. It was handmade by Fumio Ito, a Japanese Buddhist monk and potter who lives and works in the village of Shashido in the Fukushima prefecture in Japan. Ito fired the bowl in a wood-fired kiln. Masakasu Kusakabi and Mark Lancet write in their book, Japanese wood fire ceramic, they talk about the process. And here's their quote. A river of fire flows through the kiln. The ceramic pieces are as stones washed over by the flame. The firing adorns each piece with original markings as inevitably as moss grows on rocks and trees. The resulting ceramic surfaces exhibit wide-ranging finishes, splashes or waves of color, sandy deposits of ash, or metal pools of liquid color all manifest according to the intricate dynamics of natural forces. The the potter who made my bowl, Ito, only fires his wood kiln once per year. It takes him and his helpers that long to chop and split sufficient wood to burn. My oldest son spent three weeks two years ago splitting and stacking wood for the kiln. I asked my son to buy a bowl from Ito because I thought, this is so cool I mean, it's a long three weeks for him, but I just, I just, I mean, he he lived in the same house, and and Ido introduced him to to all his friends, and I thought anybody that works that hard getting a kiln ready must have some fascinating pottery, and I said to my son, you should you should buy a bowl from him. Instead, Ido gave him one. He said the bowl just wasn't good enough to be sold. I'm not even sure what the flaw is, if there is one. One of the ongoing debates in pottery is what to do with these less good wares that just don't turn out as well as the potter would like. I asked my friend Anne McCrossin about this. She has a studio space in St. Ives in the Cornwall area of the UK, and it's at the famed Leach Pottery Studio, L-E-A-C-H. She says... There are many stages in the making process from raw clay to a finished piece that turn a good pot into a less good pot and vice versa. The many stages of the making process is one of the things Anne enjoys about working with clay. She also appreciates, and here's a quote, the randomness of it, the respect for fire, and that through the journey from beginning to end, one is acutely aware of the intimacy in the relationship between oneself and the other elements. There are many, many alchemic moments which shape the end outcome. This makes the experience of interacting far more satisfying than a simple transaction. The Leach Pottery, where Anne has her studio space, was co-founded in the early 1920s by Bernard Leach and Hamada Shoji. In the book, The Unknown Craftsman by Suetsu Yanagi, at the very end of the book, there's a quote by Hamada, 
where somebody had asked him why he used such a large kiln. And here was his reply. Quote, if a kiln is small, I may be able to control it completely. That is to say, my own self can become a controller, a master of the kiln. But a man's own self is but a small thing after all. When I work at the large kiln, the power of my own self becomes so feeble that it cannot control it adequately. It means that for a large kiln, the power that is beyond me is necessary. Without the mercy of such invisible power, I cannot get good pieces. One of the reasons I want to have a large kiln is because I want to be a potter who works more in grace than in his own power. You know nearly all the best pots were done in large kilns. Now, I've never sat at a spinning wheel to make pottery, yet it's this idea that the combination of simple materials, specific steps, and randomness that intrigues me. My daughter, Brianna, has done some pottery, and I asked her, well, what, what do you like about it? And she, she says she finds it it's soothing and, and systematic in terms of the specific steps. And one of those core steps is to get the clay exactly in the center of the wheel. And without that simple beginning, the wheel will shake and pieces of clay will go flying. But once you get it in the center, she just likes how soothing it is. My friend Ann says, I love how the material I am working with comes out of ground that I know, as it has done since the Middle Ages. The reconstitutability of clay is near miraculous, as, it, as is how each potter's work is uniquely their own. The process of fully understanding the making process is intimate and takes a lifetime. Each stage has its own very involved specific steps, each enjoyable in their own way, and that being comfortable with each of them is essential for mastery. So that's what it takes. Few and simple materials, specific steps, and then there's randomness in terms of things of how they will turn out. One of the movements that periodically comes into vogue is minimalism. And Leo Balbuta, in his book, I think he published it in 2009, The Simple Guide to a Minimalist Life, he describes the principles of minimalism. And there were five. One, omit needless things. So you're not omitting everything, just the things that you find needless. And and here's one of the things about minimalism, before I give these other steps. It is a personal definition. Sometimes minimalists can get sort of very rule-based. And, and there isn't like you have to, you can only have 55 items or, or whatever. And so, but it, the idea is to, one, omit needless things, things that, that are superfluous. Two, identify the essential. Three, make everything count. Four, fill your life with joy. And five, Edit, edit, edit. Henry David Thoreau was one of the original minimalists. He wrote in a letter in 1848 to H.G.O. Blake, I do believe in simplicity. It is astonishing as well as sad how many trivial affairs even the wisest thinks he must attend to in the day. When the mathematician would solve a difficult problem, he first frees the equation of all encumbrances and reduces it to its simplest form. So simplify the problem of life. Distinguish the necessary and the real. Probe the earth to see where your main roots run. 
in episode 54, I talked about another minimalist. It was the Buddhist monk, Kamo no Chome. He wrote the Hojoki, and he lived in Japan around 1200. He, he lived in a, a Thoreau-like hut that, that was his pride and joy, very, very simple. He was a musician. He was a, a poet. And here's one of his quotes. We swarm like ants, scurrying east and west, dashing to the north and south. Folk of high birth and of of low, old and young, some going, others returning, sleeping at night, rising again the next morning. What is all this busyness? There is no end to our greed for life, our lust for gain. It is foolish to be in thrall of fame and fortune, engaged in painful striving all your life with never a moment of peace and tranquility. Of all the quotes on minimalism, on simplicity, on pairing back, editing, my favorite is by Leonard Coren in his book Wabi Sabi. He says, pare down to the essence, but don't remove the poetry. Woodfire pottery, or, or pottery that is is fired in a wood fire kiln is often called poetry by fire. And when we talk about paring down to the essence but not removing the poetry, we're talking about don't pare back to where you lose the randomness, the spontaneity, the alchemic moments that Anne describes, the variety, the joy. You know that you've pared back too much when you have complete control of everything in your, not, in your life and you're bored. And LaPro and I are trying to find, you know, where is that balance? We describe, I've mentioned we've, we've been at our farm now for a month, and, and it's, it's a pretty rambling farm ranch where they had 12, I don't know how many kids they had, the original family, but it, it's, it's kind of a sprawling ranch. We would prefer a much smaller house, but this is a house that they kind of threw in when we bought the property. So we're here, and we've described it as somewhat surreal, as uh, the incredible beauty, but trying to figure out what more do we want to edit in our life? What do we want to pare back to get down to the essence without removing the poetry? So when we talk about investing, being a minimalist investor, we what, what, what would be the qualities? Well, certainly few materials, specific steps that you would take, low fees, and recognizing you can't control everything. The market cannot be totally controlled, if at all. There is an element of randomness to how things will turn out. I spent a fair amount of time this past week on a website called PortfolioCharts.com. And this was a website that listeners and members of the Hub have mentioned to me in the past. It's, it's a really, really fascinating site. And it was developed by a gentleman named Tyler. He doesn't give his last name. He just says, I'm a mechanical engineer with a strong math education, a deep personal interest in finance and investing, and some nifty Excel skills I picked up along the way. Well, what he does on this site is there are 15 different portfolios that have just become sort of everything from the total stock portfolio, a simple... 60% 60% equity, 40% bond portfolio, and the all-season portfolio that Tony Robbins mentioned in his book, Money. I think I've mentioned the permanent portfolio is there. There's a portfolio by 
Rick Ferry, and just sort of all these portfolios that people have recommended over the years as sort of kind of basic building blocks of investing. And then what Tyler does is he has all these charts and analysis that you can see, well, what was the return of the portfolio going back to 1972 on a real net of inflation basis? And what was the risk? What was the the maximum drawdown or the longest drawdown period? How long did it take bef- in terms of what was how many years did you have losses before you again had a gain? What was the best decade, the worst decade? And just fascinating. Now, one of the challenges is everything's on a different page. So you analyze a portfolio, you got to look at the data because it's a really, really cool charts. So what I did is because I wanted to kind of see, well, what are the varieties? Because we're looking at a minimalist investing, simple portfolios. So these would be these are essentially very, very simple portfolios that you could implement with passive index funds or exchange traded funds. And so I just wanted to kind of compare. What did I did is I put together a, a summary sheet for you of all 15 portfolios where you can look at what were the returns, what was the risk, and what was the actual weights of those portfolios. And if you remember my insider's guide, you will already have gotten a link to that. If you are a U.S.-based investor, I can send you this, this summary sheet right now if you text the word portfolios. That's plural, P-O-R-T-F-O-L-I-O-S, to the number 44222. That'll get you that that document right away and also sign you up for the Insider's Guide. So in the future, you'll get the, this, the, this sort of value-added content, this cheat sheet, as well as a summary article and the other show notes. If you're a non-US-based investor, go to moneyfortherestofus.net. There on the homepage, sign up for the Insider's Guide, and you'll also get an email with this data. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tagovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david, netsuite.com david. Now, an important caveat is I, I share some of this historical data. This is looking backward in time. So this is going back 43 years. And as I've shared in earlier episodes, the driver of returns looking back in time was the starting conditions. What were stock valuations? What were stock dividend yields? What were bond yielding? That, that makes a difference in terms of the return. Still, it's, it's a fascinating Exercise. So the best performing portfolio 
was developed by Paul Merriman. It's the it's called the Merriman Ultimate Portfolio. It was described in his book, The Ultimate Buy and Hold Strategy. I have not read the book. His was the most diversified portfolio. So he returned 6.6% real annualized. So net of inflation. Inflation from 1972 through 2015, which this data covers, was 4%. So the total, the the the, the nominal return would have been over 10%, but we back out inflation, 6.6% return. The best return was 28.3%. In terms of the best year, the worst was 21%. It lost money 25% of the time. And as long as drawdown in terms of the years, in terms of successive losses before you started to get positive again, was four years. So... The, the portfolio, just in terms of real quick, the 6% each in the following equity classes. They had a total of 54% in stocks. So they put 6% in U.S. large cap blend stocks, large cap value, small cap blend, small cap value, and blend being both growth and value. It's kind of a core is what it would be. And so, for example, a, a large cap blend would be the S&P 500 index. So it's a core, has both growth and value in it. in international stocks or international developed stocks, 6% international value, international small cap, international small cap value, and emerging markets. So 6%, just split it all. That eats with 54%. So I guess that would be nine different asset types within equity. The bond allocation was 20% in five-year treasuries, 12% in short-term treasuries, 8% in Treasury Inflation Protection Securities, and then there was 6% Real Estate Investment Trust. So that that was the best-performing portfolio. The worst-performing was the permanent portfolio. That had a real annualized return of 4.8%. Its best year was 23%. Its worst year was 11.9%. Now, in terms of its longest drawdown in years, it was Two years it took before when, and by drawdown, as I understood how it was calculated, so the money, it lost money, and then it, it got sort of got back to even. And the worst was, was two years, and 30% of the time it lost money. This portfolio is 25% in the total U.S. stock market. It's 25% in the total bond market, 25% in short-term treasuries, and 25% in gold. So a very, very simple portfolio, and but the, the lowest returning sort of on a real basis. And then the other fascinating portfolio was one developed by Tyler, the author. He, he came up with what he calls the golden butterfly portfolio. So this is, this is a portfolio that's 40% stocks, 40% bonds, and 20% gold. And, and in terms of his breakdown. It was 20% large cap blended stocks and looks like 20% in, let me let me use a ruler here to make sure I'm doing that. Yeah, 20% in small cap value stocks. Looks like 20% in long-term treasuries, 20% in short-term tre- treasuries, and 20% in gold. That had a 5.8% real annualized return. So sort of between the permanent portfolio and the Merriman, Best year, 21.4%. Worst year was the best of all the worst years in terms of the lowest, negative 8.8%. So that was the the least amount. Again, a two-year 
longest drawdown. It lost money 20% of the time. And, and so that, those, that's just a highlight of, of three portfolios. Go ahead and you can get the summary sheet. You can look at them all or you can just go to PortfolioCharts.com. Play around with it. You can actually use it to stick in your own data or your own weights in terms of it. And it looks like the source of his data, Ibbotson, and they're valid sources. So it, it appears to be accurate. One of the interesting takeaways from the summary is the, the range of return, 15 different portfolios, certainly all diversified. And the, the lowest amount in, in total stocks, what it looks like was 20, 25% was the lowest amount. That was the permanent portfolio. The highest amount in stocks was Rick Perry, Perry, I'm sorry, Rick Ferry at 72%. Yet the overall return differentials on a real basis between the highest performing and, and the lowest performing was only two percentage points. The average was a 5.5% Real real return, annualized real return, and and I always I just that I found that fascinating because when I was an investment advisor, and I would have all these different clients. Typically, I'd have twelve to fifteen clients, and I, I would look at the portfolio, and because they were diversified, even though they had different managers, some passive, some active, generally the perfor- the performance wasn't that different. You know, a one to two percent type performance. And and you see the sort of the same thing here. Now, the big question is, is this performance repeatable? As a minimalist investor trying to just simplify it, diversified portfolio, can we expect a 5.5% average annualized return real? So if we assume, let's assume inflation is going to be 2% to 3%. That's a nominal return of seven and a half to eight and a half percent for essentially a fifty percent stock portfolio, forty percent bonds, six percent REITs, or five percent REITs and six percent in in gold and commodity. That's just not going to happen. If we were going to look at what's going to happen in the next ten to twenty five years, not very likely because when we look at the starting point. The short-term treasury, or the 10-year treasury bond in 1972 was yielding 7.2%. Today, it yields 1.8%. So as a start, bonds yields are so low, and the best predictor of bond returns going forward is the current yield of maturity. So some of the portfolios had 20% in short-term treasury. Short-term treasuries are essentially yielding zero. That's a fifth-year portfolio. I would not put 20% of my portfolio in short-term treasuries. So the, the bonds, the yields, the, the, the returns are going to be much, much, much lower because of the low interest rate environment that we are in and will probably be in for an extended period of time. The stocks... Also, the stock returns were were very, very good, but the valuations were much more reasonable. We look at the S&P 500 index. In 1972, it wasn't dirt cheap. The trailing 12-month price-to-earnings ratio was 18. That means investors were willing to pay $18 for a dollar's worth of earnings. Today, the trailing 12-month price-to-earnings ratio for S&P 500 is 24.2, so much higher. On a, on a Schiller PE or a cyclically adjusted PE, looking at stocks 
valuations or the earnings over the previous 10 years in calculating a PE. S&P right now, 26.2 in terms of its Schiller PE. In 1972, it was 17.3. And then the dividend yield was much higher. When we talk about a few episodes ago, we talked about the building blocks for the return for stocks. Dividend yields is a big component. Valuation is a big component. In 1972, dividend yields for U.S. stocks was 3.3%. Today, it's 2.1%. So that, in and of itself, reduces one percentage point in terms of your expected return. And so looking forward, we, we need to have more reasonable expectations. This is an interesting exercise to look at the various types of portfolios, to, to look at, for example, gold. Gold in 1972 was $58. Today, it's $1,240. The thing about gold is I have no idea what it's going to return because there isn't an income stream to determine that. I actually recently doubled the amount that I have invested in gold in, in, in my portfolio. It's now about 4% of our net worth and, and a higher amount in terms of my somewhat liquid portfolio. And, and there I bought gold coins just because it's a different return driver. And you see the impact of having gold in some of these portfolios. It can be beneficial, even though you can't value it and you know, we have no idea what it's going to return. Just having it was beneficial. And so that's one reason I have it in my portfolio. Now, all these portfolios are buy and hold portfolios, but they do require rebalancing and they do require trying to figure out what you think you'll earn on a going forward basis. If you would like help in terms of figuring out what is a reasonable return for stocks, for bonds and other asset classes based on current conditions, you can get that at the Money for the Rest of Us Hub. Dot com. It's a premium education site, membership site. We have just about 400 members now that we're, we're, we're tackling some of these issues, including rebalancing. I'm releasing a new module this week on rebalancing, how to decide when to rebalancing when, when considering taxes, transaction costs, and things of that sort. And you can get more information for that at moneyfortherestofushub.com. In terms of being a minimalist investor or living a minimalist life, everyone has to find their own balance. Here's 15 different portfolios, different ways to do things based on what was comfortable for a given individual. We need to figure out, we need to pare back everything to its essence without losing the poetry, the randomness, the joy, the variety. We want to have a few things, a few materials that we need, the specific steps but we don't want to lose the spontaneity and the poetry. Speaking of gold, there's one more quote. This is from Joe Chomei in the Hojaoke. He writes, Great wealth will drive you to neglect your own well-being in pursuit of it. It is asking for harm and tempting trouble. Though you leave behind at your death a mountain of gold to prop up the North Star itself, it will only cause problems for those that come after you. Nor is there a point to all those pleasures that delight the eyes of fools. Big carriages, fat horses, glittering gold and jewels. Any man of sensibility would view such things as gross stupidity. Toss your gold away in the mountains. Hurl your jewels into the deep. Only a complete fool is led astray by avarice. Again, you can get the portfolio summary sheet for the summary of the portfolio charts data 
You can find the date itself or the charts themselves at PortfolioCharts.com. But if you want to get the summary sheet I put together, U.S.-based listeners text the word PORTFOLIOS to the number 44222. Non-U.S. listeners can just go to MoneyForTheRestOfUs.net if you're not already signed up for the Insider's Guide and do that then, and and I'll send you the, the information. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.